This morning's Old Testament reading comes to us from the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter, beginning at verse 27 and continuing through verse 34. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and Judah. In those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity Their sin I will remember no more. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter beginning at verse 11 and continuing through verse 22 again. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father, 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. One of the things that marks out Christianity as different from most other religions in the world is that we worship and proclaim a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the same time, we are considered one of the great monotheistic religions of the world. And in order for both of these conditions to be true, we need to do a, a bit of mental or theological gymnastics. First off, we acknowledge that Christians do not worship a pantheon of gods. Think of the ancient Greeks or Romans, for example, unlike the ancient Canaanite people. We don't worship a god of fertility and a god of the harvest and a storm god. We worship a single god, a great creator of heaven and earth, a divine maker of all things. If, if that is where things ended, though, if we left it right there, we could easily be mistaken for deists. But we know more about this God than just that such a being existed or exists. This God has made with us covenants, sent for our benefit commands and prophets, and revealed himself to us the divine name, the cryptic, unpronounceable Yahweh, which lets us know this God as the Lord above all, the great I Am. Well, if that's where things ended, if we left it right there, we could then be easily mistaken for Jews, for all of this is in harmony with this understanding of God. But we know more about this God as we acknowledge his further self-revelation through Jesus, the Word made flesh. And though we struggle sometimes, or more than sometimes, to comprehend and to articulate the relationship between the, the three components of the Godhead, we believe in a God whose unity of and in three persons is unrivaled and is the ultimate model of divine perfection. And it is just this sort of model of unity that the Apostle Paul uses as a template for describing the sort of relationship that could and should exist among those who worship who serve and who adore this very God as he is writing to his brothers and sisters in the Ephesian church. There once was a time, not all that very long ago, when the Gentiles were cut off from a relationship with God. But, he writes, when the days were accomplished, this God made a way for the nations, for the uncircumcised, to become 
covenant partners with God in a way in which only the Hebrews had been heretofore. God was taking this step toward reunification with his good creation, a creation that had exiled itself on account of its own sinful rebelliousness. And in light of the divine reconciliation taking place in Jesus and through the ongoing power of his spirit, Paul is inviting then the people of the Messiah to take their cue from their master and themselves work toward unity. I think that Paul had in mind several layers of unity as he wrote the Ephesians. It may well have been that there were some disunifying forces at work in and on the church or churches in Ephesus. From the text of his letter, it seems that the believers in that region had first heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon hearing and receiving it, they had begun living as new, transformed beings in a most exemplary fashion. But then, but then something happened. It's quite likely that that something involved a, a competing gospel that was being spread by some other faction whose proponents were eloquent and charismatic. As a result, some who heard their teachings were persuaded to turn from the true gospel as expressed by Paul and his associates and to another. This not only angered and frustrated, but it also grieved Paul. And that's why he set about addressing the Ephesians. And that's what he spends much of his time on in this letter to them. Admittedly, the apostles seem to have a, a struggle with the ego, as when he described himself as a Pharisee, he described himself essentially as a super Pharisee. And after his astonishing conversion, as we read his letters to the churches, we get a sense of him as perhaps a bit of a super apostle. So the notion of anyone trying to one-up him on the evangelism circuit could certainly have caused some of his ire, but mostly, I think, his concern for the Ephesians is born out of genuine concern for the Ephesians. He longs for them to follow and to remain faithful to the, the message, the true gospel of the one who has made, is making, and will make all things new in and only in him. Only Jesus could replace Paul in Paul's own world. And that's just what Jesus has done for Paul. And if Jesus can do that for Paul, then surely he can do it for us. A part of this undoing of self is a breaking down of our own innate selfishness. <clears throat> Literally, our will of self, which fills us so fully that it shuts out and shuts off the other. This is not a very healthy recipe for a fellowship community. A much more helpful and hopeful depiction is exemplified by the New Testament in a word for the way such believers ought to live together, and that is koinonia. As described in one reference work on biblical Greek, it is a term that conveys a sense of 
communality, of solidarity, and shared responsibility among households or individuals. Or another way to think about it would be a unity of purpose. The gospel of peace, which Jesus came to announce and to inaugurate, was a gospel of reconciliation between the Creator and His creation. If those who believe in Christ then are living out their belief, we are obligated to emulate His reconciling work as we make peace with each other, both within the church and within the world. Easier said than done, I know, right? Let's start with the church, as that's the audience to whom Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians. In theory, we say that the church is the body of Christ. Well, the body of Christ cannot be partitioned. It cannot be added to. It cannot be subtracted from. And Jesus himself has already sermonized about the fact that a house divided against itself cannot stand. It stands to reason, then, That a church divided against itself cannot stand either. That applies to individual congregations as well as denominations and the holy, catholic, apostolic, universal church. And yet, it seems that we have never been more divided than we seem to be at this very moment. Perhaps that's in part a reflection of our ungratefulness manifesting itself. We church shop looking for a person or these days an online worship experience that caters to our own spiritual needs, wants, and desires. We are looking to have worship serve us rather than the other way around. We argue amongst ourselves over the music in service over the color of the carpet, over the menu for the next church supper, or less frequently but often with greater fervor, over whether and where to have flags in the sanctuary or masks on while in service. And while such details absolutely need attending to, they ought not to be grounds for disassociation. Just as in Paul's day, the doctrinal fights over dietary restrictions and festival observances, and as referenced in this morning's reading, circumcision, ought to be able to be ironed out by those harboring within them the same spirit of peace and reconciliation and unity which Christ brought to us in the form of his peace. In the wider world, daily examples of strife within the peoples of this nation are on display. From the least of these on up to the most powerful, influential, recognizable names and faces, we've made an art, not out of just debating, but of demonizing those with whom we differ. Now, not that it's anything new, as witnessed by Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, disagreeing with each other so much and so often that they agreed to a duel to hash out their differences, and as witnessed by the years of conflict during the war between the states, 
or by any of a number of historical grievances that have led to bad blood and often to the spilling of that blood on our own soil. But a pattern of past hostility is not an excuse for the way that we behave today. We are not bound by the sins of previous generations nor their consequences as we are reminded in our Old Testament reading. No, as we have been set free from the past in Christ and we are responsible for our own words and deeds, we then are responsible for their consequences. We just need to receive that gift and live into it. Just as God is three and yet one, so too he desires for his people, unique as each one was created to be, to be united together with him in one. Many obstacles stand in our way, though, and all of them have been placed there by the enemy who would do anything in his power to prevent us from being in such a relationship with our brothers and sisters and with our Heavenly Father. But this is just our privilege as followers of Jesus, thankful that we are freed from our past as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and new creations in Christ, then may we seek to serve him by guarding our tongues, by abounding in empathy and compassion to build up in ourselves and in and with one another a unity in the common Savior that we profess. So may we, therefore, prayerfully and intentionally rededicate ourselves to the holy work of reconciliation, forgiveness, charity, and love in Christ that bring about the unity that we have been made by the will of our indivisible triune God to live into. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.